The Fallaway Factor by Steve Hickey, Chapter 3, Standing with Israel. Preachers are pretty much ignored by the general population, and so my theory is that every once in a while, when God has something he really wants to say, he speaks it through a late-night comedian. Please note that I'm being somewhat facetious, but Jay Leno did hit it on the head one night when he said, quote, With hurricanes, tornadoes, fires out of control, mudslides, flooding, heat waves, and severe thunderstorms tearing up the country from one end to another, and with the threat of bird flu and terrorist attacks, are we sure this is a good time to take God out of the Pledge of Allegiance? End quote. These are increasingly perilous days for the planet. Most of the land, most of the time, the land we affectionately refer to as the Holy Land is a war zone. Technically, it has almost always been a war zone. There is no doubt these are dreadful days for the people in and around Palestine, and we need to pray. Psalm 122.6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Scripturally, Jerusalem is both a place and a people group. Scripture is quite clear that there is a direct connection between our prosperity, well-being, and future security, and our willingness to stand with Israel. If you have any doubt that Israel is central to God's purposes and plans for humanity and the planet, consider how historically Israel has been a target of the enemies of God. As strategic as we may think our cool churches are, terrorists are not targeting and blowing up megachurches in America. They target Israel and those who love her. Genesis 12.3 has never been revoked. There God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Here we come to the third factor fueling the great apostasy. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and doctrines taught by demons. This massive falling away will go far beyond mere backsliding and into the realm of betrayal and renouncing core beliefs. In Matthew, or in chapter 1, I tackled Matthew 24, 10-12, which says that many will fall away because of their love for God growing cold. In the last chapter, we looked at how people will fall away because they will be standing on unstable doctrines. I gave my list of six unstable doctrines. Here I'll add a seventh. One of the main reasons people will deliberately deny their faith under the pressure of the end times is because they refuse to stand with Israel. Israel plays a central role at the end of the age. Revelation 7.4 tells us God will seal, that is, he will keep secure, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. If God was done with Israel, as some erroneously assume today, that would not appear in the Bible. Romans 11, 8 through 12, and 25 through 27, quite clear regarding God's dealings with Israel and what exactly is going on there. Quote, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see. To this very day, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part, until the full number of Gentiles is brought in. And so all Israel will be saved. 
As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. If you have been thinking once we hit the New Testament that God is finished with Israel, you have actually not been reading your New Testament. Twice in Romans 11, the Apostle Paul says that Israel has not fallen beyond recovery, but that in fact Israel is still the apple of God's eye. Twice in Romans 11, the Apostle Paul says that Israel has not fallen beyond recovery, but that in fact Israel is still the apple of God's eye. In the New Testament, the word Israel is used 74 times. In 71 of those references, it speaks of the nation of Israel. That is 96% of the time. References to Israel are not synonymous with reference to the church. Perhaps you have heard that Israel rejected God and God replaced them with the church. It is not true. The church has been grafted in by God's grace, and we ought not boast because Romans 11:18 says, Judaism is our root, and you, church, do not support the root. The root supports you. Replacement theology. Here I want to add to the list of unstable doctrines that in the times of great tribulation will result in a great falling away for those who stand upon them. Replacement theology is an unstable doctrine. Replacement theology teaches that when Israel failed, God replaced Israel with the church. Romans 11.1 says that is blatantly false. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. When something in the Bible is cast away, you never hear of it again. Yet all the way to the last chapter of the Bible, we hear about God's covenant people, Israel. False doctrine fueled hatred and the Holocaust. Replacement theology is a false doctrine that historically has fueled hatred and the Holocaust. It will be a very unstable doctrine to stand on during the pressure of the end times because we will find ourselves on the wrong side of God and more in alignment with the Antichrist who is determined to do away with God's covenant people. Satan sees this as a loophole in God's end time plan. If Israel does not exist, they cannot invite Jesus back and Satan does not get bound for 1,000 years. Replacement theology has greatly aided his evil efforts. Have you ever wondered before how the Holocaust could have happened in Christian Germany? A little history lesson is perhaps in order. The Apostle Paul stressed numerous times in his letters that the Gentiles could, through faith in Christ, become full participants in God's covenant with Israel with regard to Jewish descent, without regard to Jewish descent or practice. That's true. But it doesn't take much to turn that truth into a false doctrine that does away with Jews forever. In the second century, a church father named Justin Martyr wrote that Christians are the true spiritual Israel. He taught that the Jews, physical Israel, will inherit none of the basic, the benefits of the Abrahamic covenants, not even the physical benefits. Everything once promised to the Jews, including the land of Israel itself, will now flow to the church. St. Augustine picked up replacement theology doctrines from there and took it to another level by making it official church doctrine. One historian of the church says today, Augustine's relatively benign attitude toward Jews is rooted in assumptions of supersessionism that would prove deadly. Exclusion from God's covenant led to exclusions 
from Christian society and then led too often to the exclusion from the human family. Did you note the shift from replaced to displaced? St. John Chrysostom, the most famous preacher of the patristic period, accused Jews of deicide and said, quote, they are as animals, now unfit for work, now ready for slaughter. For the next thousand years, Jews faced either conversion or death, and the conversion option wasn't always offered. We all know about Martin Luther. He is one of our heroes, the guy who brought the church back to the Bible. One would think Martin Luther would have been the perfect guy to challenge anti-Semitism. However, instead of rejecting replacement theology, Luther embraced it. He wrote a treaty called The Jews and Their Lies, calling for Jewish homes to be broken down and destroyed. He said they should be deprived of their prayer books. He said the synagogue should be set on fire. In 1938, a German bishop named Martin Sasse of Thuringia reprinted that old treatise and circulated it throughout Germany. In the foreword, he noted the happy coincidence that on November 10, 1938, on Luther's birthday, the synagogues were burning in Germany. Of all the Protestant bishops in Germany, only one, in a confidential letter to Hitler, protested the slaughter of the Jews. And we wonder, how could that be? The answer is that for more than 1,500 years, Christian churches of Europe taught that when the Jews rejected Christ, the church replaced them as the true Israel. Historians all agree. Centuries of Christian anti-Semitism prepared Europe to so readily and enthusiastically embrace Nazi anti-Semitism. The end of the story is yet to be written, but I should say that after World War II, the Catholic Church and most Protestant denominations renounced replacement theology. But many would say their renouncement went unnoticed in light of their actions, and that replacement theology is still the doctrine of so much of the Church, and that what we are standing on with regard to the Jews. Granted, there are some shining stars like Corey Ten Boom, who hid the Jews from the Nazis, and some key Christian resistors like pastors Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Pastor Martin Niemöller. But many Christians today are still standing on the replacement doctrine. And here is all, how all this is relevant to you and me. Hitler is dead, but the demonic spirit driving him is still hard at work in the earth. A few years ago, we hosted a special screening of the movie Obsession, Radical Islam's War with the West. Those of you who have seen it heard loud and clear that radical Islam is aligning to eliminate Israel from the face of the earth. This is significant last day's stuff, and nations are now choosing sides. Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep of the goats is an end-time passage. Both Matthew 24 and 25 comprise Jesus' end-time discourse. Chapter 24 is about the day and hour being unknown. The great falling away is foretold in chapter 24.10. Chapter 25 begins with the five of the ten virgins not having sufficient oil to last the night. Chapter 25 ends with the great separation on the last day of the sheep nations and the goat nations, verses 31 through 46. The part I want to point out is that the only difference given between the sheep nations and the goat nations is what they did or didn't do for the least of these brothers of mine. Jesus never called Gentiles his brothers. 
This is just one of a number of passages that teach to standing with Israel, to teach that standing with Israel in the end times will be a litmus test for the nations of the earth. At the end of the age, God will be looking closely at the degree to which we are a source of blessing to Israel. God's end time litmus test for the nations. Standing with Israel will become God's litmus test for the nations in the end times. I will also gather the nations and enter into my judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel. I will judge them for all they have done to my people, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. This is a passage that tells us we need to make some decisions on this now. We need to settle these issues now, as that Romans passage mentioned earlier warned us not to be ignorant of this mystery. It's not a mystery in that God is not revealing it to anyone. It's a mystery only to those without understanding on the central role of Israel in the end times. There will come a time when people will scratch their heads on this, even in the church. The Jews? Didn't they kill the Jews? Why would I? Didn't they kill Jesus? Why would I die for them? How are they different from anyone else? Many in the church will fall away at that time because they will not understand how God is using Israel to bring salvation to the world. We need to come to grips with all of this related to Israel so that we can be people who rightly interpret the crisis in perfect alignment with God at the end of the age. The Joel 3 text describes the judgment of the nations on the day of the Lord. And verse 16 says, The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. My friends, there is coming a day when you will want to be standing with Israel under divine refuge, not out there with the nations facing the roar of the Lord's judgments. Zechariah 2.8 says, He who touches you, Israel, touches the apple of my eye. Look out, this nation is precious to God. God deals with nations in relation to how they deal with Israel. History bears witness to this. What a nation does to the Jewish people, God returns to them. The Egyptians killed Jewish children in the Nile River. Later, God sent a plague that killed the firstborn of every house in Egypt without the lamb's blood on the door. This is chronicled in numerous books, but recently in Pastor John Hagee's book, Jerusalem Countdown, he wrote, What do you... What you do to the Jews will happen to you. Where is the Roman Empire? Where are the Greeks? Where are the Babylonians? Where are the Turks? Where is the Ottoman Empire? Where are Adolf Hitler and his goose-stepping Nazis? They are all footnotes in the boneyard of human history because they all made a common mistake. They attacked the Jewish people, and God Almighty brought them to nothing. He continues, In 1984, separating East and West Germany, there were two ten-feet-high barbed wire fences with a no-man's land of 100 yards filled with machine gun towers and a German shepherd attack dog. My German tour guide turned to me and fired a question I did not see coming. Pastor Hagee, why did God allow the Russians to build fences around the German people with machine guns and attack dogs? The answer flashed out of my mouth like lightning. God allowed the Russians to build a barbed wire fence around the German people to hold you as prisoners with machine guns and German shepherd attack 
dogs because the German people did the exact same thing to the Jews at every death camp. You did this at Dachau and Auschwitz, and for every Jew who died, you will have to answer to God. Unquote. Whether we like that or not, Israel is the apple of God's eye and the root system of God's plan to bring salvation and blessing to the entire earth. In the late 19th century, Queen Victoria asked her Prime Minister this question. Mr. Prime Minister, what evidence can you give me for the existence of God? And the Prime Minister thought for a moment and said, The Jew, Your Majesty. Think of that. The survival of the Jewish people is indeed a miracle of God. They survived Pharaoh, Nero, Hitler, and all the rest right up to this present age. And whether we stand with them at the end of the age is a determining factor in whether we survive. Recently, I was taking in all the depressing news reports. The Middle East on the brink of war, stifling heat waves, the clash between fundamentally opposing belief systems in the stem cell debate. And as I listened to the chatter of the media, I found myself wishing for a direct word from God. Wouldn't it be great to have a word from God right about now? Amazingly, a day or so later, I sensed God did speak through something revealed in the headlines. Headline reading, Medieval Book of Psalms Unearthed. First millennium manuscript open to Psalm 83, found in an Irish mud bog. A construction worker was out digging with his backhoe when he spotted something. As it turns out, he spotted a 20-page leather-bound psalm book that they think dates to around 800 to 1000 AD. But the amazing part, the part that I believe God wanted to be heard on every news station around the globe, is that it was open to Psalm 83. Could it be that when the world needed a word from God, he orchestrated the discovery of an ancient manuscript in an Irish mud bog? The text reads, O God, do not keep silent. See how your enemies are astir. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation, that the name of Israel will be remembered no more. What a coincidence that during these days when, according to the news outlets all over the world, there was turning against Israel for overreacting to a kidnapping and radical Islam burns with hatred toward Israel, that Psalm 83 would be unearthed. My first reaction to this was to think somebody planted it there. It was too perfect. But apparently not, unless we concede that God himself put it there. It is not a stretch for me at all to think he is behind this. I leave things out all the time for Kristen and the kids to see. I cut st stuff out and tape it to the television. If I have something I want seen, I'll place it on a pillow or leave it lying by the sink. I'm not that subtle about it. And we look at, when we look at Scripture, God is not that subtle about Israel. Psalm 83 is strikingly relevant. Verse 5 talks about the alliance of Arabs forming against Israel. Verse 12 tells us exactly what this Arab alliance is ultimately after. They said, let us take possession of the pasture land of God. You know the story, God gave land to Abraham. The borders are given in Genesis 15, 18 through 21. Quote, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, 
and Jebusites. God gave Abraham ten lands. These places and people groups mean very little to us, but they are critical to figuring out which lands God gave Abraham. Land belonging to Abraham's descendants. The descendants of Abraham have a legitimate historical right to the land, and not just that land. Here's what I mean. The map below is a typical map depicting the borders of the land given to Abraham. You can see God gave Abraham more than just a sliver by the sea, which the nation of Israel calls home today. The problem with this map is that we only know where seven of the ten lands given to Abraham are. Three of the ten, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, and Cadmonites, seem to have disappeared. I want to be clear that God's covenant land is far from limited to a little postage stamp size of the New Jersey, a postage stamp the size of New Jersey that we call Israel today. His covenant people are presently scattered all over the earth, many of them here in the United States. More descendants of Abraham live in the United States than in Israel. And sometimes I scratch my head at verses about the New Jerusalem, particularly how its dimensions will not fit in the Holy Land's present boundaries. The dimensions of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 are enormous. It's a 1,380-mile cube. Plopping that down over the New Jersey-sized nation of Israel as we know it today does not work. This map gives you an idea of the enormity of the New Jerusalem. And the image is a bit prophetic for me. When I first saw this graphic, I had the sense that the burden for the New Jerusalem is resting on America, and that the connection between Israel and America goes far beyond mere political allies. Historically, America has been Israel's best friend in the world, but my sense is the connection between those two will fully be established and recognized at the end of the age. Out with replacement theology, in with recognition theology. In my view, the Israel issue is the greatest oversight in the history of Christianity. Hosea 1 is a passage on the previous list that I mentioned of 150 chapters in the Bible relating to the end of the age. Hosea 1.10 tells us the Israelites will be innumerable at the end of the age. Quote, Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. Now we know God made promises to both Isaac and Ishmael. And we also know today that there are nearly 400 million Arab people in the various Arab tribes, the Ishmaelites. Yet it is commonly stated that there are somewhere between 12 and 14 million Jews today, only about 0.002% of the population of the present world. The math here is straightforward and it's actually stunning. 400 million Ishmaelites today and only 14 million descendants of Isaac. Did God keep his promise to Ishmael, but not Isaac? Or could it be God did keep his promise, and the descendants of Isaac are a far larger group today than those we presently recognize as Jews? Considering a world population now exceeding 7 billion people, we are either still a millennium or longer away from the end of the age. Or God's covenant promise did not come true. Or, more likely, God considers Israelites to be a far broader group than those merely of the tribe of Judah. Either we are still many, many generations from the end of the age, or there are more blood descendants of Abraham than are presently recognized right now. 
In fact, that is what we read in the text of Hosea 1.10. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. For reasons known to God, the true identity of masses of people at the end of the age is presently veiled. The next verse speaks of an end-time reunification of the people of Judah and the people of Israel. The people of Judah, quote, and the people of Israel will be reunited, unquote. From the time of the divided kingdom, the designations Judah and Israel cease to be synonymous or synonyms, either in Scripture or in the historical record. These verses in Hosea suggest the identity of the house of Israel will be veiled and not recognized until that latter time when the tribes are reunited. During the reigns of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the twelve tribes, thirteen, counting Joseph as both Ephraim and Manasseh, divided into two kingdoms. Two to three tribes made up the southern kingdom of Judah. Ten tribes made up the northern kingdom of Israel. And soon after that, we find passages in the Bible that speak of the Jews going to war against Israel. They were separate peoples from this point forward. And this is a critical point in correctly understanding Bible prophecy. Recognition theology is a term that I coined a few years ago to refer to the unveiling of the identity of millions of the blood descendants of Abraham who presently do not even know who they are. The reason I call this recognition theology is because in the providence of God, he has kept this veiled until its forecast recognition or unveiling at the end of the age. Recognition theology is a notable departure from anything presented in the Omega Course. In chapter 1, I mentioned that I wrote this book as a follow-up study to the Omega Course. Though nothing with regard to recognition theology conflicts with anything in the presentation of the Omega Course, I want to be upfront and make clear that this is a notable departure. Yet I present it to you because it is central to understanding Israel, who she is, and who is for and against her at a critical time in the unveiling of God's plan for the earth. As Mike Pickle does repeatedly in the Omega Course, I implore you not to take me at my word, but rather search these things out in the Scripture for yourself. And if what I have put forth here does not align with Scripture, in your estimation, reject it. Recognition uh, theology contends that numerous nations and peoples, including America, are absolutely identifiable and recognizable in Bible prophecy, archaeology, genographic migration studies, and haplotype studies. The promise to the descendants of Abraham was that they would grow into a nation and a company of nations. No doubt the nation Israel is that nation. However, as the verse clearly indicates, the descendants of Abraham were not limited to that nation. And we know that Israel today is by and large made up of descendants of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Those were the two tribes that returned from the exile. Interestingly, there is a company of approximately 100, quote, Christian, unquote, nations today, most of whom support Israel. In 586 B.C., when the first temple was destroyed and the 12 tribes were exiled from the Holy Land, it is estimated that they numbered around 10 million people. During the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, only a remnant returned, 43,000 families, which, which may number approximately a quarter of a million people. 
The remnant was mainly, though not exclusively, from the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. Millions of blood descendants of Abraham, almost entirely from the other ten tribes, assimilated into the surrounding pagan nations. Over the last 2,500 years, those covenant people migrated and literally populated a number of the nations on the earth today. At present, only God knows exactly who and where they are. But we are certain that his promise for those people is irrevocable. Imagine that millions of the blood descendants of Abraham, those we now consider the ten lost tribes, assimilated into pagan nations and migrated far from home. They did not vanish or disappear from the face of the earth, nor did the unconditional and irrevocable Abrahamic covenant promises of God for their future get forfeited or canceled. God knows their identity in him, even if they have no recognition of it. Jesus and his disciples were sent out to the lost sheep of Israel. Their whereabouts were not unknown. They were only lost in a spiritual sense. These tribes and people groups have since increased into many large nations, innumerable, exactly as prophesied, increasing even more by adopting many foreigners into their national covenant family. And precisely as the Bible predicted, the descendants of David still sit on the thrones of nations and possess the gates of their enemies. God's promises to the descendants of David came true. They did and still do sit on the thrones of nations, and historically they have and still do control the main geopolitical gates of the world, Gibraltar, the Suez Canal, Singapore, and Hong Kong, to name a few. In the 15th century, Mary, Queen of Scots, traced her royal lineage back to King David, and this was made plainly evident in the Scottish Declaration of Independence, which is also called the Declaration of Arbareth, which expressly states, quote, Most Holy Father and Lord, we know, and from the chronicles and books of the ancient, we find that the Scots journeyed from greater Scythia by way of the Tyrrhenian Sea and the Pillars of Hercules and dwelt for a long time in Spain. Thence they came 1,200 years after the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea to their home in the West where they live today. Unquote. It is apparent that five centuries ago, the Scots considered themselves blood descendants of Abraham and were aware of the specific migration routes that brought them to their new homeland. Queen Victoria and Duke and the Duchess of Kent, the advocated King Edward VIII, the Duke of Windsor, and notably Winston Churchill, recognized vast populations of Israelites, blood descendants of Abraham, as distinguished from those presently identified as Jews or Judahites. Of the various other notable examples, my favorite is President Harry S. Truman. That historic moment of May 14, 1948, State Department officials informed President Truman the new nation would be called Israel which surprised him, as he noted, because he thought they would name it Judea, after the people, not Israel, after the land. Obviously, he was aware that what we call Israel today is mainly populated by the tribe of Judah. This is an enormous and fascinating study, potentially permanently changing how we read the Bible. However, 
To continue on this will distract from the point of this chapter. Many will fall away at the end of the age because of an animosity toward Israel, fed by a total lack of awareness as to how this nation and company of nations fit into God's plan. End of chapter.